Hello, my friends. Welcome back to the What If Project podcast. My name is Glenn, and this is episode number 280 of the show. And let me tell you that you have picked the right day. This is the day (laughs) to be at the What If Project because we are talking to Eric Peterson, who is the son of the late Eugene Peterson, who wrote the message translation of the Bible. Uh, prolific author, prolific thinker. I would say that this man, Eugene Peterson, is the most creative and maybe even important thinker, one of the top five to ever grace the landscape of the church and of the Christian faith. I'm telling you, this man's writing, his thinking, his creativity has left so many marks on so many people Uh, including myself. Like when I look back over my faith, obviously today I'm in like a much different spot than I was 15, 20 years ago and whenever it is that I first encountered Eugene's work. But even today, like I look at my faith and his fingerprints are clearly there. And I talk about uh, in the episode with Eric about how I was so inspired by the creativity that Eugene brought uh, to the scriptures, in particular in his writing of the message translation. And that just inspired me in so many ways when I was young, when I was in seminary. And that just it really left a mark on me. And even today, like I, I still have the message Bible on my desk. And for Christmas, actually, my mom got me another copy of the message Bible, but it's the message devotional Bible with notes and reflections Uh, from Eugene's works kind of baked into uh, the pages of the scriptures. And I love it. I mean, I I read it all the time because I think it's just so, such a wonderful approach to the scriptures. So anyway, uh, IVP publishers reached out to me and said, hey, we're republishing one of Eugene's books and his son is doing interviews. Do you want to talk to him? And I was like, yes, let's book him now (laughs) because I have to talk to him. And uh, he is such a beautiful soul. Uh, we talked about his dad. We talked about uh, his life, his ministry, and how his dad influenced him and kind of left his own fingerprints on Eric's life and, and ministry. And so really good conversation coming up. Uh, do yourself a favor. I mean, if you don't have the Message Bible, what are you doing? <laughs> Go to Amazon and get the Message Devotional Bible. You will not be sorry regardless of where you are on your faith journey. It's it's so good. And uh, get some of his books. I mean, just, just scroll through the list of books and just pick one that jumps out at you because they're all so good. They're all so unique. Uh, he's so, his writing is so passionate, so creative. I can't say enough. So I'm going to put the links to his stuff uh, in the show notes. Also in the show notes will be links to my books, Rethinking Everything, Emerging from the Rubble, Uh, Patreon if you want to support the show, all the different things in the show notes. Go pay to visit, buckle up, enjoy the episode. Uh, Eric Peterson talking about his father, the late Eugene Peterson, author of the one and the only message translation of the Bible. Enjoy.
everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. Today we are sitting down with Eric Peterson. Uh, Eric is the son of Eugene Peterson. Uh, Eugene, you all may know, authored a number of books and also created the message translation of the Bible, which is one of my favorite things on earth. I reference it often. And uh, Eric has stopped by the show today to talk to us about God and faith and his dad's legacy. And we'll see where the spirit leads us. So Eric, uh, welcome to the show. I appreciate you taking time to join me. Yeah, thank you. Good to be with you. For sure. So I want to talk to you, obviously, about your dad, uh, Eugene. But before we do, I'm really interested to hear a little bit about Eric Peterson. And so maybe you could begin by sharing some of your your story. I'd love to hear about your faith journey. I'm sure it's very unique in a lot of ways. Some Maybe some of the twists and turns that have helped you evolve and change over the years and brought you to where you are today. But take us down whatever rabbit holes you want to go. <laughs> <laughs> well, it could be a circuitous uh, journey, um, but I think I can say it somewhat succinctly uh, in that there's some uh, sort of identifiable uh, contours that I've come in retrospect to sort of recognize and identify and make sense of. Um, I mean, people have cer certain assumptions about growing up as the son of Eugene Peterson. Mm -hmm. And while that was certainly significant, I think part of the um, maybe the the reluctance that came to characterize my life was well, or I should say, my call to ministry. I think I was an eager disciple. I was um, I didn't I didn't experience a reluctance to say yes to God mm -hmm. in response to God's yes to me. Mm -hmm. But the notion of being a pastor uh, was sort of terrifying. Um, not just because of Eugene, but because of the four or five other living pastors in our family at the time when I was mm -hmm. growing up, who all, in my estimation, were just magnificent. And I, in thinking about myself in those roles, just thought I couldn't possibly do that. I'm mm -hmm. way too young and too immature and um, all those things. So I got a taste for ministry through the parachurch ministry of young life in high school and found that that really resonated. There was something about it that mm -hmm. where I thought, man, this is um, this is good. I I I can see myself here. Um, so, but I think that was sort of ministry in general. It, it was certainly not pastoral ministry. And um, and then late one night, it was like one o'clock in the morning, during my fundamentalist stage of faith, when I wouldn't allow myself to go to bed at night until I read the scriptures and prayed. <laughs> Got to go through your list, uh, right? Checklist. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Got to make sure I'm doing it right. Right. Um, I was a dishwasher at a country club. And so I got home really late this night and opened the Bible. It was the living translation, as I recall, mm -hmm. to Jeremiah 1, which I'd never read before. I think I was 17 years old. And I. it was just one of those moments where I thought, I feel like God is speaking to me. Mm. Um before you were formed in your mother's womb, um, I knew you, I called you, I consecrated you to be a prophet to the nations. And then the part that resonates in addition to that calling is the reluctance, the response from Jeremiah. Oh no, Lord God, I'm only a, you, only a boy. <laughs> right. Um, and then the response from God is, oh no, you know, don't, don't say that. Um, I'm going to put my words in your mouth. Mm. I think it was that combination between the call of Jeremiah and the young pastor, uh, Timothy, that Paul wrote a couple of letters to 
help me to imagine um, maybe maybe there is something here for me, even at this young stage of my life. Um, so, uh, but but still, the pastoral ministry was uh, just felt uh, beyond me. So after I graduated from college, I was thinking missionary work. I was going to go do some work as a tropical agriculturist. I was going to grow food in the third world. Um, and and being a carpenter for a couple of years was one of the ways I delayed a lot of that sense of call. Hmm. And then finally succumbed to it, uh, went to seminary, but really honestly thinking, I'm just going to get the degree and put it in a filing cabinet and wait till I you know, gain some wisdom. Um, and, uh, uh, and the, the contractor that I'd worked for, it offered me a, uh, sort of a partnership in his business. And that's what I was planning to do until really the kind of the metaphorical 11th hour of seminary, I had a, just a compelling sense of call, realizing that this whole image of pastoring had been transformed literally overnight from something that I was resistant to, reluctant to embrace, to this, it, was like, it felt like a prize, like this mm. gift that I wanted to run toward with all of my energy. And um, and that led to my ordination, seven years of being an associate pastor on the west side of this state, Washington. And then for the last 26 years, I've been serving uh, the church that I founded in 1997. And so you've been, so you, how you, you founded, you planted that church. I didn't realize that. Yeah. And it took, I mean, I would say it took me seven years um, of being ordained um, as an associate pastor before I would be able to say out loud, I think this is what I was made for. Yeah. God made me, uh, this is the purpose for which I was made. Wow. Um, at least vocationally speaking. Hmm. So it's a, it's not an easy uh, vocation. I, there's a lot of hard about it, difficulty. The challenges are not minor league. You mean you don't just uh, preach on Sundays and go home and that's it? <laughs> it's just one hour a week, really. That's all just, it is. It's one hour. Um, <laughs> but I, I mean, even when I was young, you know, that that young Jeremiah stage of my faith development, uh, that I identified early on that I'm not looking for easy. I'm. I want to be a part of something meaningful, uh, which I believe means you're a part of something that God is doing. And that's not easy. Uh, there's It's meaningful, but there's very little about the life of discipleship that's actually easy. You've got a cross as the central uh, symbol. There's death and um, sacrifice. And so... That's not, I'm not complaining when I say it's not an easy vocation. I'm sure. just saying, um, this is what I was made for, and I'm glad to do meaningful work. Yeah. What I love about your story that you just shared is that it's, it really is a journey. Like, this was not an overnight thing that you decided you wanted to do. And here you are planting this church and doing this thing. But like you said, this is something that you, you wrestled with and that you felt like God spoke to you through a particular passage of scripture. I think that's so helpful, especially for people who are listening or just trying to figure out like what they're doing with their life and they have different passions and have different directions they think they're going to be going in. And it's not something that you just get sometimes in the snap of a finger and you just go and you do it, but it's a, it's time. It's a journey. You know, it's like your, your father wrote in that book. I forget the title of the book off the top of my hand, but it's that long, what, oh, the obedience, 
Long obedience in the same direction. That's what I'm looking for. Long obedience in the same direction. That's what it's all about. <laughs> I'm here to help you, Glenn. Thank you. I'll, I'll fill in the blanks. <laughs> of all the people who would know, I knew you would know the answer to that one. <laughs> all right. So let's talk a little bit about, um, you know, you, like you said, you're a pastor and you're the son of someone who uh, I think is one of the, one of the biggest spiritual voices uh, our world has had in a really long time. A man whose heart, uh, wisdom has impacted Christians and even non-Christians alike. I talk to people on this podcast a lot who don't identify as a Christian, uh, maybe they haven't, or they don't any longer, but they have been impacted by your dad's work. His name has come up before, but I'm curious, you know, your, your dad has left fingerprints on the lives of a lot of different people. And, uh, my shelf is filled with some of his books and, uh, my faith has evolved and shifted over the years. And, uh, his message translations have made a really big impact on me, but you're, you, you as his son, someone who grew up and you, you learned from him and you watched him in an up close and personal kind of a way like what would you say are some of the the fingerprints that Eugene has left on your life and on your ministry as you do you know church ministry every single day like what what does his influence look like for you oh you know I think I would probably answer that question differently on on different days but Depends on what's going on right <laughs> uh, yeah I mean today so just recently um we marked the fifth anniversary of his death mm-hmm and uh, today, this day that we're having this conversation in early November, uh, uh, today he would be 91 years old. Today's oh, wow. his birthday. Oh, wow. And um, so I've been thinking, you know, that those uh, anniversaries and birthdays present occasion to do some reflection. And I found myself the other day just talking to him. Hmm. Um, I assume that he knows and sees everything that's going on now that he's a part of the Great Cloud of Witnesses. But it was somehow uh, meaningful, therapeutic for me to just tell him, like, as if he didn't know anything. All right, Dad, for the last five years, this is what's been going on. This is what you've missed. Uh, one of your granddaughters got married, and now that you've got three great children. Mm. And here's what's going on in my life and at the church. And I think you'd be really proud. Um, a lot of goodness here. Mm. But I, as I look back on it, it's, um, well, a couple of things. One is I've come to realize that we can honor our parents no less in death than in life. Mm-hmm. And um, I feel like um, I carry him with me. I just feel like he's with me. Mm-hmm. I have this little liturgical practice, sort of a ritual where a pocket knife that I gave to him on a Father's Day about 25 years ago, I had put into my pocket. Um and and I just sort of say it out loud, I'm carrying you with me, Dad. Mm. And that little symbol, a pocket knife, carrying him with me, um, it just feels uh, there's a consolation. There's a sense of um, the saints overseeing my ministry. I've sort of had this uh, bishop almost, you know, paying attention, mm. praying for me. Um, so this is a, kind of a maybe a long or gentle way of getting into the trying to answer the question. Mm-hmm. I, I think the maybe the biggest gift that he gave to me was the insistence, not so much uh, created by his words, but by his lifestyle, is that each one of us is a unique creature. And our primary role is to live out our unique identity and individuality. But that is located 
precisely in a relationship with Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. uh, we are able to be fully human only in as much as we are in a relationship with God. Mm -hmm. And so that sense of legacy or the influence of him, I think is, uh, I mean, it's an enormous gift to feel like I am free to just be me. Yeah. So living in the shadow of Eugene Peterson is not intimidating. Mm -hmm. I don't have to be him. To be uh, his living legacy does not mean to be him uh, no more than for my son, who's also a Presbyterian pastor, to be like me or like Eugene or mm -hmm. anyone else in that kind of uh, family tree of pastors. Um, I mean, my son Drew is one, two, he's a fifth generation Peterson pastor. Wow. And <laughs> but we all but we all do it in our own way. So yeah. Drew is very different from me. And I'm different mm -hmm. from Eugene. So I think that's the perhaps one of the unique contributions or gifts um that I carry with me. Um I've shared this story before, and you might want to cut this out if uh feel like it's been around the block already. <laughs> But toward the end of his life, I think it was maybe two years before he died, I called a family meeting just to see the decline in, in my parents, both of them, and just kind of, you know, wanting to have this family meeting, ask the questions, how do you want this next uh, season of your life to go? And I just had a long list of questions I was asking them about where they want to live, how they want to be cared for. You know, things like memorial, funeral, you know, um, just all the things. Mm. And uh, and one of the questions was posed directly to my dad. How do you want us to think about your legacy? Mm -hmm. And he said, well, until you ask the question, I've never even thought about that. Which I think was an honest answer. But then the next morning, as we were shuffling around their kitchen in Montana, getting breakfast ready. He said, you know, I've been thinking about that legacy question. So I ran over to the table and I grabbed my legal pad where I had all my notes and I was, you know, about to capture this, whatever this was. And he just looked me straight in the eye and he said, you're my legacy. Wow. And I think that was it. My recollection is that there was no more conversation about it because we both understood that that didn't mean uh, mimicking him, being him. It meant being me, uh, to most honor him, to live a legacy of um, of Eugene is, I mean, we can all do this in as much as we live our own lives in relationship and out of that relationship with God. Yeah, uh, that's that's what that means. Mm. What a gift that is, because I mean, there's so, you know, I I've I've wondered about that about someone like yourself or someone else who you know, is a second, third, fourth generation pastor, and they've lost that elder, they've lost that father or that grandparent, who is that big kind of figure. And I've often wondered, like, what is it like to live in that kind of a situation? But I think what a gift it is to have your dad kind of look at you in the eye and say, you're the legacy, and you go do you, you know, you don't, you're not me, you don't have to be exactly. me, you don't have to try to be me, anything like that, like yeah. I did what I did. Yeah, I really should have could do what you what you need to do. What a gift. Yeah, that's exactly right. We wrestled with this a little bit. We've established the Eugene Peterson Center for Christian Faith and Imagination mm -hmm. over at Western Theological Seminary in Holland, Michigan. Mm -hmm. 
And um, and the director and I, as we've had these conversations, have been really clear in saying we're not trying to um, uh, forge little Eugenes. Um, we are encouraging people to think about this pastoral vocation in a Petersonian way, a way that Eugene sort of brought into, uh, reminded us of, um, kind of called us back to. But uh, don't don't copycat him. Don't mimic yeah. him. Yeah. Be yourself. Yeah. And um, and there's just a lot of freedom in that, um, and it requires a, an enormous amount of creativity. Yep. and discernment and risk-taking yep. um so I, I think that's an important distinction to yeah. to live a legacy is not to um mimic or imitate uh, but to it at some essential level it's the the essence of um emulating um but it's but it's the best of what god is doing in us that we're right. that we're trying to reflect that's right that's right so let's go down that road of you, you brought up the word creativity, and that's something that I've been thinking a lot about and thinking about our conversation that we're going to that we're having. Um, but in preparing for this conversation, I was combing through some of your dad's books on my shelf, and I was thinking about some of those aha moments where I can remember coming across something in a book or hearing some kind of clip or something of him speaking, you know, those times when your dad left a fingerprint on my own life and my own what I would call ministry. And I think that the, the biggest impact he made on me was gifting me through his writing, this permission slip of sort to be, to be creative, you know, to create, uh, to explore. And I think to pave ways for people to experience uh, Christ, to interact with Christ in unique, unique ways. I can remember back when the first time I picked up the, the message Bible, I was in seminary. I remember I, I got my, my, I went to the bookstore and got my own copy and people are like, oh, you know, it's not a scholarly work, you know, it's seminary, <laughs> it's not a scholarly work. It's not a, it's a, it's a nice translation. It's not like a real Bible, but I was like, yeah, but like, I've never in my life read something that resonated so deeply with me. Like I, by this time I grew up in a Christian school. I went to Bible college. I was a couple of years in the seminary. I've read the Bible a bunch of times. I'm like, I've never read something like this that captivated me so much. Like I was mesmerized, not only by like the the clarity that he brought to some, you know, clunky passages of scripture, some Old Testament stuff, some of you know, like Paul's letter to the Romans, something I always never really fully understood on right. the book of Revelation. But like what, what really pressed on me was like, here's a guy who's super creative and who has fearlessly paved this new road, you know, this new way to interact with these ancient writings that a lot of times just don't make any sense. And he took some leeway, right? Like he put forth some ideas in the translation that some people I found to are very steeped in like more orthodox, conservative theology, dogma, didn't really appreciate, but he did it anyways. And like what inspired me was seeing that that he freed himself from those those opinions, from the critique that I'm sure he probably knew were going to be coming and he created something that is going to be on bookshelves around the world for generations to come. And what I really wanted to tell you is that as someone who is creative and who loves to write and loves to sit with the scriptures and just imagine like new meanings, new interpretations, like new applications, I really feel like getting that, that moment in seminary, holding that Bible the first time, like really changed the trajectory of my life because like I found myself 
in seminary where we're learning about theology, exegesis, hermeneutics, like all these different things. But I held in my hand this book that was just filled with ideas that really acted as a springboard for me. And I think a permission slip to dream up new ideas in regards to God and the scriptures. And that's a gift that I will carry with me, uh, you know, for, for the rest of rest of my life. But what, what, what I'd love first, if you could, anything you'd want to respond to that, please do by all means. And then second, maybe you could also talk a little bit about that creativity of Eugene, because he strikes me as a very creative person uh, and like what that looked like maybe in his faith and how that leaked into and shaped his own walk and, and journey with, with Christ. Well, I, I feel like I want to start by just uh, speaking to, I think I actually want to correct you, an assumption that I heard you say sure. about fearlessly. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he went into that not altogether undaunted. Mm. Uh, I think he has such a kind of a reverent fear um, and recognizing what he was doing and handling the word of God. Sure. And he he um, he did not do that without some trepidation. Mm. We commissioned him, uh, the publisher. Um, I mean, I, so we went to Colorado Springs to have this commissioning uh, commissioning him formally to do this work. Mm-hmm. And I offered this commissioning prayer. Um, I've lost it. It's, it's so long ago. But I do remember clearly saying, as he's kneeling on the floor, I had anointed him with oil. And one of the images I brought in was that he would be tethered to the text. Mm-hmm. In other words, the creativity that he brings to the translation wouldn't deviate or stray from the intent as the revealed word of God. But that's a balance, right? I mean, that's a trick to, um, to, to find. And, and as you know, some of his critics thought that he went too far. Mm-hmm. I believe that he didn't. I think that being a scholar of the uh, biblical languages, you know, he was in those, um, he was in the Greek and the Hebrew and he had serious scholars that, you know, checked his work. Mm-hmm. Um, but this, so I think what's unique about the message is that it was written by a scholar pastor. Yeah. Um, he, you know, pastors are translating all the time. We're translating <laughs> God's word into people's yeah. lives, into congregations. And so he just brought that sort of fresh pastoral uh, eye and ear and pen uh, to create something that was um, fresh, but not new. It's mm. it's the enduring word of God, same yeah. yesterday, today, forever. Um, but I, I guess I really am of the, I mean, I believe it when the Hebrew, the letter to the, uh, the writer to the Hebrew says the word of God is living and active. There's always... It's, I mean, it's alive. And so for to get stuck and sort of codified in the King James language is sort of a way to kill it. It sort of mummifies it, right? Um, Like you, I went to a seminary that taught biblical exegesis in a way that kind of reminded me of learning the scientific method. There was dissection and um, it was very, it was very scientific. And I, I learned a lot. But I came to realize that it just sucked all the life out of it. And uh, part of what the message does is breathes new life into it. 
Um, I think theologically, the way to think about this is that the spirit of God doesn't stop creating. Um, and so while, um, you know, there's six days of creation, that spirit is still hovering and recreating and breathing new life into um, the world. And every generation needs to find a new way to uh, to articulate that. Mm. And I think that was his um, just this magisterial gift that he gave to us was mm. for this generation. This is a way to hear God's word. I'd say one more thing, and that is just he was an enormously creative person. He had a, uh, an incredibly fertile imagination. Mm. And um, and that emerged, as I've come to see it, from his immersion in the scriptures. That's the environment that created that enormous uh, fertility, which allowed him to write so many books, um, but also to do that translation in a way that's both faithful to the text and um and sort of congruent or resonant with the culture yeah uh, it reminds me a little bit of the way john philip newell in his um in one of his books describes celtic spirituality um whereas the sort of the roman end of the church is represented by peter mm -hmm. and the you know the papacy and the uh on this rock and and the apostolic succession, all those things that we've inherited. But John, the beloved disciple, is depicted in the Gospels with his head resting on the chest of Jesus. Mm. So in the Celtic tradition, that's understood as um, he's he's listening for the heartbeat of God. Uh, but he's got one ear on the chest, this contemplative tradition, and then but the other ear is exposed to the world. Yeah. And I think that's I think that's how Eugene lived. It was a, a deeply contemplative immersion in the scriptures, listening uh, to the heartbeat of God, but also um, always paying attention to what's going on in the world around. That image gave me uh, gave me chills thinking about that because I mean, what a what a what a beautiful metaphor for, I mean, just living everyday life. Whether whether you're a pastor and a writer like he was, or you're just working your everyday nine to five kind of a job, having one ear on the heartbeat of God and the other ear out in the world. And I think if we could grasp that, that picture, we could make that part of our everyday life. Imagine the, the impact that we could make in the different places that we are in the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I had a uh, John Philip on the podcast uh, yeah. about a year ago, I think. We were talking about a similar idea, but we're, we saw, I think we we talked about Richard Rohr, where he talks about the um, the scriptures are like a diamond. I think he says where every time you turn it and the light hits it a different way, you see something new. You see something different that maybe you hadn't seen before, and that's that's what the message reminds me of. Is because I feel like every time I open it, I could open it alongside of the NIV, you know, which I have, or the new living or the new King James, whatever version I have, but I always see something there that, ah, like I see it. I'm like, Oh yes, it is there. Like I, it's been there the whole time, but your dad's translation just helps kind of bring it to the surface. So I could see it all the more clearly. I think part of that, just that living or creative nature uh, that we get 
from him and this contribution that he gave us in the message is um is one that is playful mm-hmm. um it's not so stuck or um or sort of knotted up i think i just think um much much of the time people just want to get this locked down like this is the word of god we're going to codify it and it's don't mess with it don't deviate from this um and i i just think if if god intended it to be that precise um jesus wouldn't have used metaphors he would have used much more precise language Mm -hmm. but parabolic language metaphorical language it is an invitation it seems to me to play uh, to be expansive to wander around to be creative to uh, imagine and um so there, there certainly need to be guardrails and boundaries. Sure, sure, sure. Uh, but I just think there's a lot of freedom and spaciousness to wander and experiment and wonder. Yeah. Um, and that's partly, I think, what you know Paul's doing with the Galatians. He's, you know, saying uh, you don't need to lock it down. You don't yeah. don't need to go back to the rigidity and the precision of the law. Yeah. Uh, this is a this is a free life that yeah. we've been called into. Yeah. So play, you know, have a good time. Yeah. Sit in the, the mystery of it all. Right. I think sometimes when we get so, you know, we have God all figured out in a box with a nice ribbon on the top of it, you know, especially reflecting on my time in seminary and just trying to have our systematic theologies and things. There's those things are good. There's a place for those things for sure. But I think that when we lock ourselves in that box, I think we lose sight of something very precious regarding the mystery of God. Yeah. I, I mean, I agree with you totally. I'm I'm very suspicious of systematic theology. I believe it has its place. Mm-hmm. There are things that we need to know and learn and understand. Sure. But um, the danger of it, in my mind, is that it gives us the illusion of mastering the text or mastering theology or actually understanding God uh, when mm-hmm. uh, I think the intent the, uh, is for us to approach God in a variety of ways. And uh, let's just say this through the scriptures and allow the scriptures to master us. It's really good. All right. So a lot of our listeners are um, in a spot in their journey where they're asking questions, where they're exploring, they're rethinking. The buzzword is deconstruction, reconstruction, whatever word you want to use. And uh, many of them, Eric, are are very um, coming from a wounded place. Many have been wounded as a result of their experience in the church in various ways. We have listeners from around the world, US, Canada, Malaysia, Australia, Honduras, all different places, different cultures. And some of the stories that I've heard, um, you know, through email, messenger, some things people have posted, um, just a lot. Many are struggling sometimes even just to stick with God, to not view God through the lens of their experiences, but to to view God through the lens of that uh, still small whisper of love in, in their heart of hearts. And and your dad wrote wrote that book. You, you mentioned it before about Galatians, uh, Traveling Light. It's a book about, about freedom. It's a book about freedom in Christ and uh, living in that freedom in this time, in this place, you know, here and now. So I'm curious if the people who, like I just described to you, our listeners are on the mic, like what would you say to them, uh, to those who maybe grew up in the church, they dedicated their lives to, you know, their faith only to be, to find themselves in this season in a place where they feel kind of bound up in some chains, you know, left with some trauma, some, 
some were spiritually abused in some ways. Um, some instances not even wanting anything to do with the church anymore. Like, how can somebody like that in that situation uh, with so much baggage begin to travel light, to borrow the the title of your dad's book, and discover or rediscover that freedom in in, in Christ? And you're a pastor, you know, so I'm sure that you you've come across some of those people yourself in your own journey. So what, is it, what do those conversations look like for you? Yeah, well, it's a great, I mean, it's a huge question. Um, mm-hmm. And I would say, I don't just deal with it as a pastor with parishioners. I, I do that myself. Um, that is, I feel like I'm growing. There's evolution in my understanding, my behavior, mm-hmm. faith. Um, I think that's the nature of faith is it is alive. The images that Jesus used were primarily you know, agrarian. They were, sure. uh, they weren't static. Uh, there's so there. I, I just think we need to we need to approach this life of faith as something that is evolving, changing, growing, developing. And I'm, um, I I don't know. I just feel sad for the for the pain that we have caused people over the years. But this is what happens when you get 2000 years of an institution, it just starts heaping baggage. We are so, we just have this proclivity toward making rules. We like rules. I mean, children, I was watching some children the other day uh, developing a game. They were making up something and they spent the first half of the time just making the rules. (laughs) Um, And, but that's what we do. We, we don't grow out of that. Yeah. Um, that's what our legislators do. We hire, we elect people and they're writing laws all the time, making, you know, um, there's some companies, big companies that if you look at their policy and procedure manual, it reads like a history of the organization because every time someone violated a, like a, a cultural value, um, the executives would say never again. Making a rule, new policy. Um, let's codify that. Well, the church has kind of done that. We've got two thousand years of church history, where people, church leaders of various stripes, have developed these kind of rules, expectations um, to try to, in my mind, in my critical mind, to try to create a sort of a moralistic, uh, rule-following people. Mm-hmm. And it has bogged us down. Mm-hmm. So I would affirm anyone who's in a process of deconstruction, of questioning, of um, of uh, sort of critically evaluating what to keep and what to discard. Mm-hmm. And I would say there is still a whole lot of things that need to be jettisoned from our theology and our ecclesiology the way we live this faith. Um, and so we need ongoing reformers. Mm. Uh, you know, those of us that are heirs to the 16th century Protestant Reformation don't assume that the reformers got it all right at that time. Um, the church is always in need of reform. Mm. So I say, bring it on. Um, and and I think this... Uh, you know, anytime there's been kind of a revival or a reformation, it's always emerged from the scriptures, a new, fresh reading of the word of God in the 
uh, sort of the language, the vernacular, the you know, a language that people understand. And I actually think that's part of the gift of the message, is it it lends itself for us to think critically and to do the deconstruction or the reformation or whatever you want to call it. Um, and to sort of hold up what is God saying versus how are we practicing <laughs> this uh, life of faith in community? Yeah. And those points at which it do, it's not congruent, mm-hmm. uh, I think that's where we say maybe that needs to go. Yeah. Maybe um, maybe we uh, got that part wrong. Mm. Um, but without that level of humility and honesty, um, it's uh, it's anything but freedom. It, that's I think that's where the the chains are. That's where the bondage is. That's a that's a return to Pharaoh's Egypt. Yeah, I think you know I'm thinking about just like my own journey and thinking about like I've had so many people. I won't go into the specifics of things, but I've had so many people say to me, "Well, you know, like you're you're not a Christian anymore." because you don't see things as A, B, and C. Like, this is what you were taught. Like, this is orthodox theology, whatever. I'm like, yeah, but just because I see the Bible differently than I did 15 years ago when I was saw it as this perfectly inerrant, infallible, absolute, you know, came right from the mouth of God. God sat down in a Starbucks and wrote the book and handed it to it. Like, that's how I used to view it, you know, and now I view it very differently than that. But I, I love the Bible. Like it, it awakens something in me that like, the, especially the stories of Jesus, like I feel closer to Jesus today than I ever have before, even though I see him in profoundly different ways. But I feel like my, 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 my journey through life and some of the things I've encountered, whether it's in the church or it's in my personal life, whatever it might be, like you said, like there's just some pieces of theology that I've come across and some different things about my faith that I just adhere to because I was told this is just the way it is. You just have to believe it just like this. Now I'm in this place where I feel more free to ask the questions. And I feel like I've, I've, I felt it necessary to deal with some of those pieces of theology in my own life. And I felt the real freedom to do that. And I just feel like what you were just saying about, about that whole piece about having to the, the ref, the, the reformations of the past have come from, from those kinds of questions. And I think that that's so important. That's what it feels like for me. That's what I feel like we're doing on this podcast. And so thank you just for affirming some of that for me. Well, yeah. And, and, you know, going back to Jeremiah, who I've shared with you has been such a significant figure for me. Mm-hmm. Um, when, when God calls him, the, the job description is they're like these, they're these three almost like strophies, right? Mm-hmm. Um, now I've put my words in your mouth. Um, I appoint you over nations and kingdoms. And then here's the job description to pluck up and to pull down, to destroy and to overthrow, and then to build and to plant. Mm. So two thirds of the prophetic job description is deconstruction. Mm. And if, and that's the place we start, whatever we've inherited, that's what we go in doing. There's demolition, there's deconstruction. Uh, we tear it down, pluck it up, destroy, overthrow. Yeah. Um, only then can there be building and planting. So that's my, gosh, my word of affirmation of mm. that work. There's just a lot of crap, frankly, that we've inherited after 2,000 years 
um, of bureaucracy and policymaking and um, lawmaking rules, all the things. And uh, a lot of it needs to be jettisoned. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for, uh, for affirming that because I know that will, that will speak to a lot of, a lot of our listeners, but last question for you, I was flipping through uh, some highlights in my favorite Eugene book, uh, the pastor, which is his, his memoir where he shares uh, some details regarding his, his own journey about halfway, about halfway through the book, he talks about his time at the uh, catacombs Presbyterian church. And he has this quote that I wanted to read uh, for, for our listeners and then ask you if you could just respond to it quickly. But he says, uh, getting to know these men and these women in the church as participants in God's story, not as problems that we can fix, letting them be themselves, not trying to force them into a story. Uh, can you can you talk to us about this, about seeing people as participants in God's story? And kind of as you said earlier in regards to your dad about not having to live in his shadow, but just letting people be themselves as opposed to problems that we need to fix. What did that look like in your dad's life? What does it look like in your life? Feel like as a as a pastor, because in my experience as a pastor, it was very easy to view people in the pews as individual problems because you know sometimes so much about their lives. So it's you know there are different problems you need to fix and you have to kind of tweak and help them kind of along the way. But we can look at people that so much like that that we we can lose sight of that inherent goodness and the role that they're meant to play in the story. So. What did that quote, what did that look like in your dad's life? What's it look like for you? And how might this approach of viewing people make a difference in, in our worlds? I'm really glad you asked that question because I think it's an essential one for pastors and really anyone to consider. Uh, it turns out that it was a similar experience that he and I both had. I don't know that I knew about his at mm -hmm. the time that I was going through it, but this might be particularly um, a... Um, a danger, sort of a treachery for uh, church planters. Mm -hmm. So the catacombs church, it was actually Christ our King, but it was sort of nicknamed catacombs because it was in the basement of our house um, when he was founding this church. It started mm -hmm. in our house. And, um, and so when I, uh, you know, many years later started a church, I, I rubbed up against this temptation to view people not just as problems to be fixed, but as resources mm. uh, that were sort of a means to an end. I had yep. a job to create a new church. Yep. And so I was uh, tempted to view people through that lens of what are you going to do for me? Yep. Uh, what gifts are you going to bring? What, how many, how many checks are you going to drop so that we can make this happen? Mm -hmm. um, and I, I mean, I just had a pretty profound fear of failure mm. and I was running scared. And, uh, and so I, for, so for Eugene, it was a little different experience. He came to view people through the lens of souls. Mm. These are souls. I uh, stumbled onto or into more of a sacramental view of people uh, as the baptized, mm. uh, the children of God. And man, that just saved me from doing some damage to folks. Because once you see people through that sacred lens mm -hmm. of child of God, you know, sealed by the Holy Spirit, grafted into Christ, citizens of the kingdom, 
um, image bearers of God, then it's really hard to reify them or objectify them or use them for your own purposes. Right. You have to honor uh, and celebrate the Imago Dei. Hmm. Um, so I'm just so grateful that that happened, that I, um, there's a story behind that too, but that's, that's been my primary pastoral um, lens through which I've viewed my congregation for these 26 years. Mm -hmm. These are the baptized. Uh, these are holy people, um, the saints. It's not something that you graduate into, earn, or develop. Well, you do develop, but that's that's where God starts with us, saying mm -hmm. that's who you are. Mm -hmm. um, and if we treat people in, as anything less, then we're doing damage to the creation. Right, that's right. I was talking to my wife the other day. We were actually in a pickup line. Our daughter's in first grade and we were, it's always a long line to pick her up. And we were sitting there and I was, had been reading a book. And I, I said to her, like, I, I feel like I'm in this place where I'm trying to recognize the breath of God in people. You know, like it says in Genesis that God breathed life into Adam. And let's just say that Adam is representative of humanity and he breathed life into, into Adam like that means that the breath of God is in me, the breath of God is in you. And so when I look at you and I look at Eric, like I see, I see you, but I also, in a sense, see God because his breath is in you. And I also see myself because my, <laughs> the same breath in you is also in me. And I feel like if we, if we could come to a place, whether it's in the church, in, in the world, where we could, we could, we could have that approach with people, it makes it much harder for me to hate you or to want to hurt you. If I can look at you and I can see you, I can see God and I can see myself. I feel like that, that could solve so many problems in the world. If we could just, <laughs> if we could just figure out a way to get on board with that idea. Yeah, no, you're exactly right. That's the bingo Yahtzee um, insight. If, yeah. uh, if we could view and treat one another as God's children, we're all, we're all children of God. Um, that 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 resolves just about everything that we face as challenge yeah. uh, in this in this day and age. Okay. It's the um, I mean, it's that it's that contradistinction between the first Adam and the last Adam, right? Mm -hmm. We are living in the flesh of the Adam who was cast out of the garden, lives east of Eden, um, but we're trying to locate our lives in the last Adam who is returning us into paradise, into that place of. Uh, just pure goodness yeah um and and we can do that for each other that is i think yeah. we can be uh like lowercase r redeemers right. as we heal people uh, remind them of who they really are yeah. uh, uh, and how how through jesus god is bringing us back into the garden of paradise yeah yeah i love i love that you said that that word restore because that that makes me feel like the goodness is in there, right? It's it's inside of there. The spark is is in there, but I think that so often we we lose sight of it, we forget it as we live our lives and we pick up the baggage and things like that that we spoke about earlier. I think that it gets covered up. But I think when I, for me, the story of Christ, like when I look at Jesus, I look at the cross, I look at all these different things in the Gospels. I look at Him, and it reminds me of that spark inside of myself, and helps me wake up to remember, like you said, who 
who I really am. Yeah, well, I'm glad for that. I'm glad to hear that. I, I do think, you know, some of us have inherited this notion of original sin, uh, which gets, you know, highly emphasized in the Protestant tradition. Um, and I don't want to, uh, I don't want to do away with that. I, mm -hmm. you know, sin's a real thing. That's the first Adam. Yeah. Um, we have this nature of uh, disobedience and wandering and straying from God. And, um, but I, I don't want to lose sight of the original blessing. Yeah. Um, the, the echoes of it is good. It is good. It is good. Um, we need to lift that up, celebrate that. Um, there's, there's a lot of blessing goodness. Yeah. That's one of the things that led me down the first road to deconstruction was, original sin because when my daughter was born they rushed her to the NICU and so I was you know following the doctors down the hallway I have no idea what's going on they get her in this tank all these wires hooked up to her they said you can stick your hand in the tank so I'm like okay suck my hand in the tank and she reached out and she grabbed my pinky like I'll never forget like the theological crisis I had in the middle of the NICU because I literally thought to myself like original sin just no longer makes as much sense to me as it did when my own flesh and blood is literally squeezing my finger and mm. I'm thinking to myself, if I, as a father, look at this child and I see nothing but goodness and sure, she's going to lose sight. She's going to lose some of that goodness as she grows up. It's going to get covered up by different things, but it's always going to be there. I'm always going to remember this moment. I thought That's to right. myself, doesn't God feel the same way about, about me? And that just made me rethink so many different things. And like you said, there's a, there's a place for sin. It's, it's obviously there, but I think that there are some different theological principles around that idea that we do need to rethink in terms of moving forward in our faith. Mm, that's beautiful. Awesome. Well, hey, Eric, we're just about out of time. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you for making time for me. Thank you for the work that you and your family are doing. I could talk to you all day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I feel the same way, Glenn. Thank you for just giving... Um... A place for this kind of conversation. It does feel really important and grateful for what you're doing. Thank you. And uh, real quick, where can people go to connect with you online? Do you hang out in any social media places? Do you have a website you want to point people to? Oh, gosh, I have a really small footprint. So um, <laughs> uh, I mean, people can sort of find me if they want to reach out, but I don't, yeah. I don't really do a whole lot of that. Awesome. Well, you're, I think you're, you're, you have a website, obviously, for your church. Are your sermons online? They are. Yeah. Okay. We continued to live stream uh, post COVID. And so those, uh, I think the sermons get recorded and preserved. They're sort of archived. Um, and our website, we've got a YouTube channel, but it's easiest just to access that through colbertprez.org. Awesome. I'll put the link in the show notes and we'll point people there. Mm -hmm.